Welcome to another episode of the Alter Your Health Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, hello and welcome. We value your time and energy and hope you receive a lot from tuning in. As a listener-supported show, we rely on you to help us grow. We'd be so grateful if you share the show or a favorite episode with a friend or fellow health seeker. Living a healthy and nourishing life doesn't always come easily, especially in today's crazy world. But that's why we're here, doing what we love, hopefully helping you along with information and inspiration that fuels your health pursuits. If you're looking for more support, consider subscribing to the monthly Meal Guide membership. Just $11 per month gets you access to a weekly meal guide filled with healing and delicious whole food plant-based recipes, along with invitations to our regularly scheduled support calls where we can connect, answer questions, and keep the good vibes flowing in our healthy lives. You can learn more at www.alter.health slash meal dash guides. And if you're looking for more in-depth support, check out our other services. We offer both one-on-one consulting as well as educational programs. All of our current offerings are listed at www.alter.health. Our ultimate goal is to empower you to heal yourself. Keeping with that theme, let's dive into today's show. Welcome back to another episode of the Alter Your Health podcast, your source of information and inspiration to promote the holistic transformation of your health and the health of our planet. Today, we're diving into yet another new topic. That's what I love about this podcast is that we can dive deep into many different things, not all at once, but individually to gain a better understanding of how to achieve health and wellness on an individual and collective level. So our guest today is an expert in the world of plants. That's herbs and botanicals as we distinguish today. Herbs have kind of encapsulated everything around cannabis and that specific plant, while botanical medicine, of course, encompasses all other plants that can be used medicinally. So our conversation today dives into the use of cannabis for health and healing, as well as many other plants. So I'm excited to share this conversation with Dr. Glenn Nagel, who was my botanical medicine professor, and he has been a practicing herbalist and naturopathic doctor, and what he calls himself an all-around herbal wise guy for the last 30 years. His background as an herbalist began in the early 1980s as he was one of the first herbal apprentices with Herbal Ed Smith and Sarah Katz, who are the founder of Herb Farm. Um, You might recognize Herb Farm as being one of the common tinctures that are sold at a lot of health food stores. He also studied with the seaweed expert Ryan Drum, as well as a wise woman, Cascade Anderson Geller. And he worked in the herbal industry as an herbal educator, offering classes and courses in herbal medicine. He's a licensed naturopathic doctor in Oregon and has practiced naturopathic medicine since graduating from the National College of Natural Medicine in 1993. Now, of course, National University of Natural Medicine, where he continues to teach botanical medicine, in addition to teaching at Bastyr University up in Kenmore, Washington. He has a lifelong interest in plants and nature and believes that It's best to be teaching with humor and hands-on experience, which is something that he definitely does in his courses, 
both in the classroom as well out in the woods, harvesting and identifying herbs and learning about herbs on a, in a hands-on kind of relational sort of way. I also really appreciate Dr. Nagel's connection with plants and herbs in a culinary sort of way. He likes to infuse herbs into drinks and food. And in our conversation, you can see if you're watching the video, you can see that we're enjoying a very nice beverage that he prepared for us. An herbal flower elixir with um, ginger foam. So it was a good one. I loved the conversation. I loved the drink. And I loved the time shared with Dr. Glenn Nagel. Just to note that this conversation was recorded outside on the beautiful patio. We didn't foresee the leaf blowers that would be going almost constantly in the background. So I'm sorry if some of that background noise was picked up on the audio. Um, it got a little bit noisy on our end right in the middle of the conversation, but hopefully it's not too bad throughout the rest of it. So just wanted to forewarn you on that quick point. Uh, before we dive in, just want to remind you, wherever you're tuning in from, whether it's iTunes or YouTube or whatever other platform, if you could subscribe and leave a brief review, I would so appreciate it. It really helps what we're doing here. And without further ado, why don't we just all sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Glenn Nagel. <music> Welcome to All the right. Welcome to the Alter Your Health podcast. That's the Alter name of this health. podcast. And I am Benjamin Alter, and you are Dr. Glenn Nagel. Yes. And I've had the privilege of sitting through a number of hours of your entertainment on the the side of herbal wisdom mm. and teachings. And I'm excited to sit down and go a little bit deeper into into different things as well. So. First, why don't you just share who you are and how you've come into uh -huh. the field of naturopathic medicine and then honing in on herbs and yeah. plants. Well, the background really is it's fascinating because I think, you know, we all move with our skills. And so, uh, you know, I was undergraduate. I was studying uh, outdoor education because I was trying to get credit for hiking and camping. And so I had this outdoor education degree. And I really got fascinated by botany and plants and started studying and identifying plants. And I just got bit by the herb bug because, like, you know, plants had all these stories and this wisdom. And so I started studying herbalism after college. And I ended up getting an apprenticeship with uh, Herbal Ed Smith, which uh, herb farm. And I just opened my world. This was in the early 80s. And then after that, I got a job with some herb companies. And then eventually... I was in Portland, and the naturopathic school was where Eclectic Institute had their offices. And so I met naturopaths, and I was like, mm -hmm. well, if you wanted to be a clinical herbalist, that was the only path, hmm. you know, the, the legal path. Yeah, is that still true today? I mean, in terms yeah, of Yeah, no, herbalist has no status in this country. You could be an herbalist, and you don't need a license, but technically you can't diagnose and treat. Right. You, you can, can just support their health. You but, can kind of just recommend herbs. Right. And so for me, it was like, oh, I studied herbs long enough. I thought, you know, being a naturopathic doctor gives me the credibility to practice herbalism. And it seemed like a path that was presented because I was like <laughs> at the school. And the, sec the year I started was the second year they got student loans. So wow. it seemed like, oh, I can borrow to, to get this to happen. And Now it's all downhill from there. Yeah, now it's all downhill from there. So. <laughs> 
cool. So, you know, I, I studied and uh, graduated, and I, I always had an herbal focus, and it's gone in various ways. And I think the thing that I, I feel good about my 25 years as a naturopath is that I really have a, a diversity of, I've pr clinically practiced for about 12 years full-time, <laughs> and then I've worked in the herbal industry for about 10 years full-time, uh, on and off, and I've been an educator for almost 10 years, and so that kind of ability to do a little bit of everything is kind of naturopathy at its core. Yeah. Jack of all, master of none, or as I like to tell the students, jack of all, master of one when you graduate. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have had a, di a diverse professional career as a naturopathic doctor spanning between the clinic, academia, and now you're fully focused at Herb Farm. So what's your, what's your shtick now? Well, my shtick now is I'm kind of an independent, I mean, I'm kind of remaking myself at, after doing all this. Uh, I was working full-time for Herb Farm, and now I've transitioned to kind of doing consulting for some of the herb industry, and I'm focused on working with um, colleagues to um, do a cannabis company. Cool. Uh, could you say more about that or not? Maybe not I can just give yeah. some preliminaries, but, yeah. you know, the concept... Uh, that I really think of is if you look at what's going to take herbal medicine into the future, right? And mm -hmm. it's the concept that uh, one of the things about cannabis is that it has all the press now. It has all the awareness. Everybody knows what CBD is, right? Everybody's aware of it. And we live in Oregon, and it's a legal medical and legal recreational. And there's an industry where um, this is becoming legit. And so... What one of my focuses is they need more herb people in the cannabis world. Yeah, less less cannabis people and more herb people. Yeah, and you know, yeah, it's a diverse growing industry, and there's it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of like home contracting. You know, like half just got out of jail and half got should be in jail. <laughs> no, that's the joke, but it's kind of the wild west. And so my concept is it's a plant, uh -huh. centuries old that has been sustained by knowledge, by hippies, by, you know, culture. Yeah. And so much like turmeric or green tea, there's a lot there and it's not smoke and mirrors. Mm. Well, there's a little smoke. There's a little smoke, <laughs> not so much mirrors. Yeah. But, and so looking at what I see is like, you know, we, we need to take a perspective of like, this is a plant that has these kinds of constituents. I think the interesting thing is that, um, it's being legitimized by science and by um, research, but it's also because of federal restrictions illegal federally. Yeah. And so it creates this kind of loophole where it's, it's legal in some places, but federally illegal. And that only draws the interesting entrepreneurs, the small people. And so the team that I'm working with to develop this business, um, we can get into it because it is federally illegal. And mm -hmm. so small groups of people can risk their time and money to try to make something, whereas the big people are on the sidelines now waiting for where it's legal. Mm -hmm. And I know having worked with legal herb companies, and I like to separate them now, I can say uh, <clears throat> herbalism, herb is cannabis, and botanicals is everything else. Say that say that one more time. So when me. you say herb, everybody knows, oh, it's cannabis. So herbal medicine, I think of as cannabis medicine. Botanical medicine is everything else. Okay. And I've just highlighted yeah. it because 
in a way, cannabis has stolen the herbal with the green cross. Totally, totally. I mean, and I think there's maybe potential good and bad from from this. You know, like you were saying, it's totally in the spotlight of the press and everything. And sometimes I wonder if it could be like a a platform to grow and to expand upon in terms of legitimizing the use of other herbs in the world. What are your thoughts on no, that? I think that's what got me interested in. I mean, I'm an herb person and all herbs have their role. And what I see happening with cannabis in Portland, as an example, is uh, somebody told me the other day there's 402 cannabis shops in Portland. Is, is that all? <laughs> is that all? Yeah. <laughs> Some, I mean, they must be right around here. You know? and, and, and there's like six herb shops that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that sell botanicals that don't sell cannabis. And I'm right. like, okay. That seems a little bit skewed, meaning it's all a, a perspective of continuum from black mm. and white, right? And so that how does the cannabis mix in with other herbs? And so we know that cannabis can be very helpful for relaxation and CBD heavy strains have, have a profound effect on cognition and stress and anxiety. But kava works too. Yeah. And passion flower leaf works too. For and sure. chamomile works too. And so that's a from the strongest to the mildest. Yeah. If you walk into a cannabis shop, they're going to sell you the hammer. <laughs> and as a clinician and a naturopath, I'm like, you know, maybe you just need a little massage and some gentle herbs. And so that continuum is this idea that all herbs have value. It's just we have to make the judgment on which way do we want to start. You want to start with the strongest. Um, and so a lot of people go into cannabis shops and, you know, the experience for some people that I've heard is that, you know, especially novices, the seniors, the people that are new, they come in with problems and they can have a bad experience and that can, they can be out of the, you know, like you can get too high, you can get too much of something. Sure. Too much of a good thing. Yeah. They can, they can drop people off. And so I look at all these herb shops and think, you know, the cannabis shops, they're going to, the numbers are going to go down just because they're saturation. And what ha what is going to happen um, if they diversify, if they work with people? And I think the analogy is like uh, liquor, liquor stores. In Oregon, we have liquor stores. You have to go there, state run. And liquor's been around for a long time. Every, everybody has a liquor story. Every family has a liquor store. Great uncle, you know, uncles, aunts, you know, everybody has a story about alcohol, good or bad. Uh, with cannabis, there's kind of a blank slate. A lot of people don't have stories. And if you look at the regulation of alcohol, I mean, it's gone through the model where now you go into the, um, the stores and it's all regulated. Lowest on the bottom, most expensive on the top, it's all 40% pretty much alcohol. You grab what you want and you try to get out of there as quickly as possible. And so cannabis is in that realm now. Do we move to that same place? Or do we use, I think, education and awareness and understanding of plant chemistry to try to manipulate and work so that people can understand the range of um, aspects of healing that cannabis can bring. And so the bud tenders and the people in the store that I've talked to, they're really the front line of like, do you just give people what they want to get high or do you educate them on the medicinal aspect? And this is all gonna be played out in the next 15, 20 years because eventually it's gonna be commoditized as an industry. You know, It's gonna be an industry and the industry is gonna say, this is what we're gonna sell. And so there is this pushback to try to keep it local and keep it 
organic and keep things as the craft cannabis industry is versus the industrial version. And sure. alcohol's kind of shown us the way. And so the OLCC, Oregon Liquor Control Commission, monitors that here. And so is it going to parallel that track or is it going to take a broader track? In f and are cannabis centers going to be more like clinics and healing centers than they are like dispensaries for a drug? Sure. I definitely want to wrap back around and dive a little bit more into cannabis. But first, I want to, you know, that's not what this whole whole talk is on. You know, like you like you already made the distinction. Cannabis is kind of the herb and botanical medicine is everything else. So when it comes to botanical medicine, um, one question that I am kind of faced with often, both like by others and also kind of bubbling up in turn inside of me, even after, you know, naturopathic education and everything is like do the herbs really work and do they work as well as other things that are that could be used therapeutically you know yeah no i've been studying this a long time in the clinic cl clinically worked with patients with herbs mm -hmm. and what i'm coming down to with the with botanical medicine and herbal medicine and the non potent herbs, what we would call the tonic herbs, which is pretty mm -hmm. much this, the ones that can safely be used. Like the, the elder, the elder, elder flower and the echinacea. I really think it's all about what I would call nudge medicine, you know, that they nudge you mm -hmm. in a naturopathic model as a pillar for health. You take the right diet, the exercise, attitude, some herbs or supplements, and they nudge you with the vital force back. Some herbs are much stronger, like from the cannabis and the kava realm. But most of the herbs are just nudging us and moving us in the direction and supporting us. You know, you think about that support model. So yeah. taking them over a period of time, combine them with other things, and people can feel transformed. Now, if you study them clinically, and there's more and more research coming out about botanical medicine, but the research oftentimes is focused on herbs as a drug. And I totally. think that's where some of the mistake is made because when you look at research, whether it's echinacea or ginkgo, it always goes down to what did they use in the study? And it has to be quantified. And this is the place where it breaks it down into chemistry and plants have hundreds of compounds, if not thousands of compounds per plant. And how, come, how do we determine which ones are the active? And so we make this game that humans like to do of saying, well, these are so-called actives. These are the things we're concentrating. And a great example in the herbal world is something like ginkgo. You know, ginkgo has been studied for 40 years. The Germans really brought it to prominence, and they used the ginkgo extract. And it was the 24-6. That means it was standardized for 24% flavanones and 6% terpenes. And that's what the studies were done on. And so when you look at a ginkgo study for tinnitus or you look at a ginkgo study for uh, circulation and brain health, it's with the standardized extract, which is kind of a, a potentized herbal extract, meaning it's kind of a plant drug. Right. And so if you just take some ginkgo leaves and make tea out of it, you're not nearly going to get the strength of that. And so in some cases, if you're going to get the benefit of ginkgo, you have to use what they used. And so everything depends on what they're using. And so a lot of the early herb studies just had, you know, dried herb, and they didn't quantify it. And I think this is where... Um, the science is coming together with botanicals and cannabis is that it's all about the testing. What do you have there? What are the strains? What are the different components? And that's kind of leaking a little bit into herbal medicine now because in herbal uh, botanical medicine, uh, you know, there's 
something like dandelion and it's just roots and you can make extracts and has never really been quantified for actives. I like to think of them as actives. I don't like to think of them as the only thing in there, but the actives are the, the marker compounds or I like to think of them as fingerprints. You know, each herb has a fingerprint of maybe three to seven compounds that if you find in there are determined to make it high quality and maybe the key things what well, it works. Everything has a synergist effect, or like they call it now, the um, entourage effect. It's like, it's kind of who you hang out with that's really important. Mm -hmm. Not just one strong personality, but the group. Yeah. And so all these plants now have these entourage effects, and so we're getting to see that with plant medicine, uh, botanical medicine, that we're looking more at the chemistry and saying, do we have, like kava has six noble kava lactones, and those six noble are the components that are found in a kava extract. And if you don't have the six noble, you probably have something that's not considered to be therapeutic and safe for the market. And so people want to see, oh, that's what you have. That's been tested. That's been quantified. Yeah, so it, so it almost sounds like there's two branches of botanical medicine. There's kind of the, the plants and the, just using plants as nudging medicine gently. And then there's the the plant drugs, which are the constituents that are isolated and compounded and, mm -hmm. you know, put together in higher dose and used right. to treat a disease, mm -hmm. like, specifically right. in kind of, I don't know, the, the green allopathic sort of way, just symptom, symptom treatment. I like to think of it as, like, three ways you can look at plants and concentrations is that there's what's called the crude native extracts, and native extracts are like something you can do at home, meaning I can make a tea out of a dried herb. I can eat fresh herb. I could put the dried herb or fresh herb in alcohol or glycerin or water and extract it and make something that is a crude, takes what it dissolves in there and gives it to you. You know, it's not quantified in any way. And then there's so-called standardized extracts where they take a certain amount of herb and oftentimes you use some type of solvent system that's beyond the scope of what you have at home, and CO2 or other solvents, and they concentrate comp components, and then they assay them and then label claim them as the 24-6 ginkgo or 95% curcuminoid or curcumins in turmeric, and that's sold as a standardized extract. And then the next step is the isolated extract, and a good example of that is like berberine sulfate. You process massive amounts of low berberine-containing plants. You isolate it into a berberine salt, berberine sulfate. You quantify it, you isolate it, you package it, and you label it, and it's one component, and that's become an herbal drug, naturally sourced. So if you pick up whatever you have with an herbal product and look at it, decide, is it a native extract, is it a standardized extract, or is it an isolated extract? And as you go up the list, and this is, these aren't my, uh, this is all from Dr. Francis Brinker, a naturopathic who wrote, wrote this in a book, 2004. And I like it because it kind of quantifies as you go up the list, you have more potential for side effects and more uh, mono components may have strong activity, but potential for side effects. And so if you look at the crude native extracts have lots of components and lots of um, potential action, but it's often gentle and when, without side effects. And as we go up the list, and so you kind of look at the clinically, the model is, you know, I want to use, some patient came in with hepatitis C, 
I'm going to use a standardized European source milk thistle extract because that's what the research has shown, and it's kind of like they need the herbal drug level. Mm-hmm. If I just give them milk thistle seeds, that's more of a wellness approach. You know, somebody like you or me that are just trying to tweak our health. Got it. So if I'm understanding you correctly, all of these levels have their place in the world. So it's not a matter of this being better than, you know, the, the, the crude extract and the whole plant being better than the constituents. It's just a matter of what your goal is, what your intention mm-hmm. is with the, with the plants. Right. I think one of the things anybody that has been in any clinical practice, especially in natural medicine, naturopathy, herbalism, is you want to really have a broad um, perspective and rule nothing out. I mean, I think one of the challenges in naturopathic practice is people would come in with serious health problems and they would want you to just give them herbs and remedies and cure them. And I'm like, your experience would be, as a practitioner, my experience would be, that's not going to cut it, you know, like maybe you need another intervention. But, oh, I don't want drugs and surgery. And and I, I agree that's a great place to start. But eventually, maybe something like that can be helpful. And so yeah. don't throw it off your your uh, table. Like, keep everything there and start from the most safe and natural and go up. Right. And so uh, I think a lot of times practitioners or uh, patients have unrealistic expectations that, you know, I think of a patient I had had breast cancer, and it was just a mass on her breast, and it was open, and it was weeping, and it's like, can you just give me herbs for this? And I'm thinking, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is beyond the scope of herbs. And so... Uh, having unrealistic expectations, um, you don't want to let squash that because that's the power of healing, you know, hope. And I remember one uh, practitioners that I worked with, they were a medical person and they were like, well, you're giving people false sense of hope. And I'm like, well, if you think it's going to help and the patient thinks it's going to help, then that's hope. There's nothing and, false. And about there's it. nothing false about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not an abusive hope. You're not. And and, you know, this idea that naturopaths or other practitioners are economically benefiting from what they're doing. I mean, if you've done it for a living, you'll be laughing at it because it's like you can make a living at it. But it's not like anybody's getting rich and retiring on false cures. Right. If it mm-hmm. works, it works. If it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, so could you talk a little bit now about how herbs work? Well, some some examples of mechanisms, because you talked a little bit about the constituents and then the whole plant and synergy. And I know it's so out of this world, like wrapping our, you know, studying it in effect is by nature reductionistic and we can't really grasp the whole realm of what's going on. But what do we know in terms of how herbs work? We know that the, the plant components have been around a long time. And how they heal, I remember when I taught BotMed 1 at NUNM, I always started the class with a little small discussion, and I'm like, how do plants heal? Because we have to get the paradigm model of, like, how do they work? And there is no right or wrong answers. They can heal you from having chemistry. They can heal you from having nutrients. So you just think of uh, tonic herbs. There's proteins and fibers and carbohydrates that build your body. The antioxidants that are in there. Um, the chemistry, like a great example would be like terpenes, you know, like mint oil, it's gonna have menthol. And if you think about the terpenes on the plant, they're on the outside, and they're pretty much more um, fat soluble than water soluble. And when you absorb terpenes, the monoterpenes especially are very small, 
and aromatic, and so when you swallow them, they worm their way right through your digestive tract and into the bloodstream or into the uh, respiratory tract. And so if you think about um, all our spices, our terpenes, right? Oregano and cinnamon, and, and the terpenes are really a focus of research because we know they're absorbed really quickly. And the model that I have is they absorb right into the intestinal lining and the stomach lining. And as they go through there, they can be carminative because they kind of poke holes in the digestive tract and allow gas and bloating to get out. They also calm the membrane from being spasmodic, and so they work for anti-spasmodic action. And so if you think about quick-acting, all the aromatic plants, essential oils and teas and oil extracts of that, they work through pushing these terpenes into the bloodstream and calming. So that, that's a very immediate effect. Yeah, yeah that, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a great example because a lot of these herbs, they... Um, Another, other classes of herbs kind of need to build up in the system and you know you have to have and it's this kind of you know days to weeks to months sort of slow gradual thing so what are some examples of those kind of herbs that well, I think don't the, have the immediate the, the ones that I've been studying like uh, I've been working a lot with ashwagandha mm-hmm. and has withanolides and the withanolides have an adrenal supportive effect they're um, energizing but also relaxing and the adaptogens are really interesting compounds they tend to be saponin in nature saponins are soap-like molecules and so if you think about soap it's foaming in its nature and so saponins have an ability to be cleansers but these saponins and the adaptogens uh, is a a russian word that was coined for something that's non-toxic that given in low doses over a long period of time has an effect that it helps the system adapt to stresses. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, it can raise or lower stress hormones depending on the individual. And so in some ways, we talk about compounds that have plant wisdom that interact with our body and allow our body to do different things with them. And so the adaptogens, because they're tonic, they don't do anything after one dose. Like ashwagandha, People have to take it for a week or two, up to three months, to feel its benefits. Whereas kava, you could take it, and 10 seconds later, you're going to feel calm yeah. and relaxed. But I feel like I have had an experience of taking Eleutherococcus mm-hmm. at nighttime and feeling stimulated. Is Was that my mind playing tricks no, on No, everybody's me unique to how they yeah. respond to that. And, and I think one of the things when you take uh, alcoholic tinctures, the alcohol is the driving agent, you know, like... Uh-huh. Just like, like having a gin and tonic, it drives whatever's in that glass into your bloodstream, and uh, the tinctures go in very quick. And so some people have a stimulating effect because there's alcohol in there. And okay. the herb can get in, the, and some uh-huh. people can have an effect right away. I mean, it's not something that uh, every, it's commonly experienced. but Yeah, so it seems like another important thing is setting realistic expectations of what herbs will do you know not expecting like you're saying just a one dose cure from or one you know a few tincture a few drops a day for a few days and just voila yeah Yeah. well you can also leave open the idea so we talked about chemistry affecting your physiology and this is a dosing model that i have taught of the three different There's pharmacological dosing, where you take an herb in large enough things to have an effect. Mm -hmm. So these compounds in the terpenes go in, relax the muscles, and they absorb gas, and so you're feeling better. There's physiological dosing, 
So you get nutrients from herbs, you get vitamins, you get compounds that build your health, like magnesium and calcium. Um, almost any green plant made into tea, so nettle tea or alfalfa tea, if you think of it, it's pretty much a potassium broth. Mm-hmm. So green, any green plant, green tea especially, uh, it's a potassium broth. Your body needs potassium, it's energizing. And so that's like physiological response. You're getting physio- things that build your physiology. And then the last effect is kind of the, uh, I would call hormetic, the low-dose or homeopathic. Hormetic is more of a medical model, meaning uh, your body responds to ultra-low doses in a way that's not to be predicted. Mm-hmm. Stimulating effect, sometimes from a super small. And so in homeopathy, there's a lot of controversies, but hormesis has been studied really well by this guy Calabrese and the idea that uh, I remember one study it said like maybe up to two or three four cigarettes a day have a stimulating effect on your health because it ca- the toxins cause the body to uh, upregulate your cleansing of your lung and so that people had a beneficial effect not a negative so that's yeah. kind of the hormesis effect it's so, very interesting I've heard similar studies about um, radiation exposure kind of being invigorating to the system I mean we think about radiation being like a, a poison a toxin and you know it's all no, in, dose. I, I remember we, we lived in Montana and they have uh, health mines and you'd go down in these old mines and there'd be card tables and you sit around and they're low level radiation Huh. And you would stay down there, and the old people would have significant benefit from joint pain. And yeah. it was monitored by the state. You had to wear a little button, and I can't remember the levels, but that's that model. And so if you think about that, anybody can take. There are herbalists, uh, colleagues of mine, that give two or three drops of an herb, and they can get physiological effects. And so some people would call that uh, magical. And I'm like, you should be open to the fact that there can be magical things happening with plants. I mean, and that's a part, the naturopathic profession, as it's grown and try to be incorporated, it's like, uh, no I like magic. That, the, the bumper sticker, Dr. Stargrove has passed out, keep yeah. naturopathy weird, because on some level, once you eliminate magical thinking, um, then magic won't happen. Right? Yeah. Then you're like all cut and dry, and that's where the, the medical model is. It's like therapeutic dose, and this is it. And I'm like, magical thinking. And I had this with a friend of mine who's uh, rather religious, and they kept talking about, um, well, I wonder what Jesus has in store for me, and God thinks I'm going to do that. And, you know, religion is magical thinking too. It's like uh, you can't necessarily prove it, but you have a personal experience that it moves you. And I think of the herbs the same way. It's like I have magical moments with plants that can happen. And it's not just, you know, potency. It's like you can have magical moments with chamomile. And, and I think of it more like uh, there's not m- so much magical plants as there's magical moments with the plants. Like there's a relationship that you have. And so when you have the relationship with the plant, it oftentimes picks up on your energy. And this is kind of beyond the... The provable, but I really think that the plants have an ability to like tune into what we want with them. And so when I worked with herb companies making different kinds of herbal medicine, they'd always like, well, could you make it stronger? And like, you know, I'm like, well, we make it in a, in a, a uniform method so that we can provide what the plant gives us as constituents. It's up to you as the practitioner to make it stronger. And how do you make it stronger? By your relationship with the patient and by empowering them to use this as a tool 
And so I think of it a little bit like uh, my analogy now is if you take a stick and a dog, the stick is the problem, the arthritis, and you holding the stick is the practitioner, and the dog is the herbs. And so once you pick up the stick, the dog gets pretty excited. You're like, all right, arthritis, here we are. And the dog's like, yes. And then you throw it, and the herbs are like chasing after the problem. And so if you think about plants just sitting here in this garden, you know, the plants are providing mood. They're interfacing with us whether we know it or not. And I love that uh, concept that Dr. Bill Mitchell said. He said, you know, are we attracted to the plants or are they attracting to us? And it's two-way street. And so allowing ourselves to have magical moments is like, I think, human nature. Yeah. Like once all the secrets are revealed, it's, it's hard to have that. And so with herbs, you always have to... And that's the beauty of the herbs is they go all through that. You can have total scientific thinking and totally magical thinking, and they don't contradict each other. They work with each other. They're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And I think that the migration of the naturopathic profession is definitely moving away from magic. <laughs> and because, you know, the general mass population and the insurance companies and the government, they don't really operate in magic world. No, they, I think insurance reimbursement does not pay for magical treatments. <laughs> <laughs> and so the naturopathic medicine kind of still has the roots in modern shamanism. You know, I, I first started practicing and um, I realized really quickly that if you had a good relationship with the patient, I mean, they trust you and they were looking to you for advice, that you could tell them about anything and they would go do it. And that's a strong um, power to have, right? And so the, you want to use it judiciously, but it also is like you can uh, work with them to stimulate healing in ways that are non-pharmacological. Mm -hmm. And it's shamanism. Look at the history of shamanism. There was a professional relationship between the shaman and the, and the, uh, the villager, and that involves some type of exchange of energy or money or trade. And in some way, the shaman imparted some wisdom to you, some remedy. Mm -hmm. And so it's built into our DNA that we're looking for somebody to assist our development and healing. I think uh, the thing that herbs work really good is that they can be magic. They can look and smell magic. You know, they have a taste. They have a personality. They have an activity. And so the average person with herbs has an experience with them. Whereas, uh, like homeopathy, you know, you can take little homeopathic pellets and you wait to see something happens, but there's nothing kind of organoleptically about it, nothing drawing you in. Mm -hmm. And so the plants are attractive. You know, they're, they're bringing us in. The scent of the rose, you know, the color of the rose, those kinds of things draw us into the journey. And I think we need help on the way of the healing journey. So something that we can grab a hold of. Yeah, totally. Could you share a few of your magical experiences with plants? <laughs> you know, magical experience. I'm thinking of um, linden flowers. Um, I love the linden flowers. They're just finished blooming here. And, you know, it's a temperate tropical. So these pendant blossoms, it's in the Malvaceae family. And they're very aromatic and they're very um, relaxing. It's kind of a, a, a relaxing tropical tree that's actually a temperate tree. So in some ways, it kind of be like jasmine or one of these heady tropical. It has a kind of a relaxing, kind of sedating quality. And so 
one time I was up with a friend in a tree picking. Now, they're very hard to pick because the blossoms are on the end of the branches, and mm-hmm. linden trees are historically uh, quite big, but the wood is very soft, so the branches snap really easily. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of get a ladder and go up into the tree to collect it. And so I was in this ladder collecting the in the tree. And I was just kind of having a linden moment. I think in homeopathy you'd call it approving. You know, like I was surrounded by this this heavy sedative smell that just got so strong that I just started getting really tired. On top of it, it really attracts bees because it has wonderful nectar. And so you have all these bees buzzing around like you're afraid to get stung. And literally I said, I'll just take a, a little nap here on the ladder. Well, that's a bad idea. And so literally I caught myself, you know, when you have those moments where your head drops, like my head was dropping and I was just about to fall 20 feet off a ladder. And then I was like, okay, Lyndon is really wanting me to go down. And um, there is this historical model with Lyndon where uh, in Europe, especially in Germany, they called it the truth tree. And they would hold court under the tree because they felt that it radiated the ability to be truthful. And then I made the connection where um, if you think of when you're relaxed, you tell the truth. To lie takes a lot of energy, right? You have to kind of create a lie and you have to maintain the lie. And uh, relaxing is just like you're going to tell the truth. And so in that moment in the, in the uh, tree, I was just ready to relax you know, I was probably too tired. And so it just set me into that place. And so those are the kinds of things where you have these moments that you remember like, wow. And one of the things, having taught herbs for years, I kind of feel like mostly I'm telling you stories so that these are my experiences about plants. Go out and have your own story, you know, mm-hmm. how you can have a magic moment. Yeah. Now, it could be magical in in like a, fantastic way it also could be kind of frightening you know uh the time i took too much lobelia and i threw up for an hour you know it was approving and i had an intense experience but i would say it was magical because i really learned the power of that plant and if you read about lobelia and its history as an emetic and how it was used by thompson and all all his practitioners they use this as a medic. And, and when you read the old text and you said word for word, I experienced that. The nausea, the vomiting, the relaxation, the feeling as if your fingers are tingling all the way out to the tips. You know, you just feel what the old practitioners write about and like, oh, I had that moment. And now I know. And so I think it's a great way to understand a plant is to work with it, to grow it, to harvest it. And then at some point, to take it and then keep taking it. And if you take too much, then you understand the toxicity. Like you can take too much ginger, right? You can take too much cayenne and we can imagine what it might be like burning and watering. And so that, you know, the upper limit and then, you know, the lower limit and you kind of set your boundaries with that plant. Mm. I'm not saying going out to poison yourself with too much of plants, but you will find that happening when you're around plants like, Oh, I've taken too much valerian and I just fell asleep in the middle of the day. I've always loved in class you talking about herbs as being friends. And I know in my life when now, whenever I walk in the woods, I'm always, you know, seeing my friends and, um, 
I think that developing that relationship with me and the plants, you know, not that I have that many friends in the in the natural world, it's still growing. My friendships yeah. are still gro- mm-hmm. growing. But I think that definitely supports my connection with the plants and also my ability to call upon them when I feel like I need them. You know, they're not just powders and capsules and bottles. They have a home just like us. They grow from the earth just like us. And I think having that connection is is really powerful. Those are what I would call your power plants for you as a practitioner. Like, you know, we could say there's a dozen plants that all you really need to practice well. And those are like having 10 good friends. It's like they each have qualities like, oh, I'm going to call my friend a lawyer when I need some (laughs) advice, right? And Hmm. so it's good to have these people in close enough relationships that you can just access them. And I think of the plants of that way. There's something that you can access. And, and those power plants, like some plants, you know, that you can't connect with everything. And so some things, I don't have an experience with them. Like I can remember working for years with motherwort and I never really could get like, how, what is motherwort about or how to use it? And then I finally realized it really embraces the concepts of the feminine and it was just not that accessible to me. It just wasn't speaking to you. Yeah. Like yeah. I just don't have the DNA to really understand it a little bit. And so uh, other people could take that same plant and really create some amazing effects. And I know over the years talking to um, naturopathic colleagues, you know, colleagues would be like, what do you use for this? And I'd say, oh, I use this for this condition. And they're like, well, I use, like I know this one colleague was like using blueberry for something. And I was like, blueberry, really? We think of it for the eyes. But she had some other clinical indication that she found really great results. And so what I love about it is it's one plant a hundred ways. Not a hundred plants one way. And that's the drug model. One drug, one way. And the herbs, and this is the hard thing about studying them is the, and I know medical people and pharmacists have a really hard time, it's one herb a hundred ways. So I could give Hawthorne Berry for a hundred different conditions and it would be right. I might know three that I could use it for, but there's still 97 other ways to use it. And so it falls us to more of the food model of like, how can you use food? Well... You can take peaches and find 100 recipes for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Well, could you share maybe a few of your closest friends? Your power? I mean, I think the ones are the ones that I can uh, be connected with. And so I think living here in Portland, there's a season for some of the herbs. And so, mm-hmm. like, I love um, elderflower, you know, the elderflower. Like, we just made some elderflower syrup that we were having with bubbly water. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the spring when that comes on, I mean, the elderberry has a big role, but to me, the elderflower is great because I've moved into this model like where uh, I want my herbs not only to help me, but I want them to be an experience. And so it has to taste and look good. And so what we're drinking today is the um, the purple uh, or the pink elder blossom, which is called the elder um, purple lace. And it's an ornamental elder, which has the purple leaves and the pink flowers but they're very aromatic and they're still very therapeutic and if you take the pink blossoms and you soak them in some hot water and add some lemon juice it turns bright pink because the the pigments in there the anthocyanins in the leaf and in the flower with acids are revealed to be stabilized and they turn pink and then i take that and depending on how strong you want to make it add sugar or honey and make a concentrated syrup and then 
you know, one teaspoon of the syrup, six ounces of bubbly water, stir it up, and you have a flavorful drink mm-hmm. that has the properties of elderflower. And elderflower is light. It's uplifting. It brings the blood to the surface. can be used for sweating. And I think of it as an immune modulator. I know the berries thought of even more, but the flower has some of those properties. Mm-hmm. And it's just great in the middle of winter to take a little elderflower and just smell that early summer headiness. Mm-hmm. So that's one I love. Any others that you could rattle off real quick? I mean, I love... In, in here in Oregon? I mean, the linden, I talked about the linden, you know, being that in Portland, there's a lot of linden flowers. That has a very aromatic flower, and that one's really great. I mean, who more medicinal, the Oregon grape. You know, the root has that bitterness. Yeah, I've made some really great bitters with Oregon grape, the digestive as- aspect of that. It's super abundant, and it's really hard to, like, eliminate Oregon grape. It's, yeah. It's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Those are some of my highlights. <laughs> all right, cool. And on that note, what do you think about people, you know, there's all the Chinese herbs, right? The whole Chinese medicine mm-hmm. herbs that are, a lot of them are exotic, grown in other regions around the world, not local. What do you think about using non-local herbs and how compared to, you know, I just yeah. have the feeling that I'm going to use the herbs that are around, but shipping, you know, people are shipping herbs right. across the globe these days. What are your thoughts well, on that? Well, everything is a commodity, especially uh, Chinese are selling it because we're a market and it was never my um, personal interest because I was too connected to like, if I can't see it or grow it, how do I know what the herb's supposed to do if I just get dried herb in? Like, I like the life cycle of the plant. Mm. And so for me, it was something that I never really got excited oh, about. No. <laughs> Uh-oh. I think that might be overpowering us. Um, but some, somebody yeah. may love the Chinese herbs and like, great, let's do it. Yeah. You know, let's import them or let's use Western equivalents. It just wasn't my path because it's like having a cook and being a cook, but only cooking with Asian food. Like, well, I'm never going to get the right spices because even if they're sent here, they may not be fresh. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about um, herbs and food and just and uh, I've learned about the kind of continuum between herbs and food and how, you know, obviously a lot of herbs are on the spice rack. Right. Um, and a lot of. You know, it kind of is dose dependent. But could you talk a little bit about bringing herbs into the kitchen and how that might, you know, provide any benefit to health and and uh, anything like that? Well, <laughs> I don't know if yeah, this no, is too I, bad. I, I'll send this guy uh, who's doing the blowing uh, an herbal <laughs> message. <laughs> Time to move on. Yeah. Um, well, herb. As food is the the way most of the world uses them, you know, like if you take spice herbs and that's your only intro, introduction to herbs, that in itself is such a rich, wonderful, and because they so much alter our food and help absorb our food and make us digest our food, um, the amount you use in spices is very small, but it, there's a powerful therapeutic effect. And so uh, this idea that herbs have to be bitter and nasty, I've... I found in practice, the model I had is everybody wanted things that tasted better. And so my role as a practitioner was to give them what they needed, but give it in a way that they could pal- be pal- palatable. And so uh, in the Chinese medicine model, it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> the nastier it takes, the better the medicine is. Yeah. Now, that's not a Western culture model. Our patients want 
They want to be babied. They want to be embraced. They want to have something that tastes good. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be like Kool-Aid or soda. Um, you can start with something that they can tolerate. And as they educate their palate, I think most of us as naturopaths, our palates are like, we could take anything. Mm-hmm. Be like, well, that's bitter, but I can appreciate it. And so the herb spices are a really way to start with people, like, you know, especially in digestive health problems. You know, one of the first things I did with one of my teachers, Cascade Anderson Geller, was she t- made us go home and take all our spices out of the cu- cupboard, first pour them out and fill them up with new ones because they were going to be too old. And then she made us put this scientific name on there and basically saying, you already have a relationship with pepper and ginger and garlic. Let's just acknowledge that and deepen it a little bit. And then after that, you could throw in an organ grape or an elderflower and just so coming it from herbs. I kind of came from the medicine end and I backed into the, the <laughs> non-medicine end. Now I'm more into the therapeutic drinks and, and yeah. fun because I think it's for everybody. Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I really love what you're doing in terms of making it fun, making it delicious. I think that that's the way that health should be. You know, everything, health shouldn't be white coat clinic sterile walls. It should be part of every mm-hmm. single day of living. So that's definitely something that I appreci- appreciate about what you're bringing to the table. Well, it just kind of go with your strengths, you know, and I, and I think for me, I'm not a cook, but I'm a foodie on the level that I appreciate. And so when I take one herb, I'm like, we just got to take one herb and just kind of go deeper with it. And like nettles would be another one of my power herbs, like, cause they're so abundant here in the Northwest. But you know, I've experimented with nettles and like a lot of the breakthroughs come from just messing around with it. And like, I, I think like Chinese tea is a great uh, context is like, how did we get 600 flavor profiles of, from four strains of one plant? Yeah. They messed around with it and they found that you could age it, you could ferment it, you could steam it and dry it and make all different forms. And so that kind of stick to itness with the plants you have, I think will serve you much better than like flitting around. Again, figure out 20 plants in your in your growing environment that you can grow and work with. And that's traditionally with all cultures. And so I, I'm somewhat of a regionalist because um, like I asked one of my colleagues, Dr. Ryan Drum, who's one of my teachers and a great mentor and who I just did a class with. Oh, yeah. I said, Ryan, what do you think about ashwagandha? He knows nothing because he can't grow it and, or hasn't grown it. And it's not interested in an Indian herb, but he'll tell you about local plants because that's what he's connected with. And I think yeah. that's a great regionalism that all traditional cultures have. Now we're a global world. We're fusion herbalists. We blend everything. But you got to know a core of things that you are connected to that you can grow. Do you think that we can actually do that? Do you think, because I feel like a lot of areas of the world, they're just kind of herb deserts. But maybe they're just herb deserts to me because I don't know the herbs that grow there. Like, I, you know, I'm from Arizona, you know, in the southwest, and I know that there's the prickly pear and there's uh, mesquite bushes. and But I feel like the northwest is kind of herbal heaven, right? Well, we just have so much more water here, and the water makes everything big. I lived in Colorado for nine years, and it's the front range, and it's dry. You have plants there, but they're survivor plants. Uh, there'll be less. And part of my movement back to the northwest was like, I'm more connected to plants than rocks. And Rocky Mountains are rocks. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's plants there, but it's more of a rock world. And so here there's abundance. And I also lived in the Midwest. And, you know, like everything we have here is so big because the growing season is longer. But we're also because we have the moisture and we have the mycorrhiza and the fungi that support the plants. And so the nettles grow nine feet tall here. And in the Midwest, they grow three feet. So mm-hmm. there's a difference. Yeah. So when you were in Colorado, were you using Colorado plants? Or I always try to bring something from yeah. my environment to to my my practice. And so, um, you know, you could harvest things that you could use, although it's debatable whether there's a legal path to doing that. But again, when you have uh, yeah. patients um, trust, they're fine with taking whatever the medicine they have, whether you made it or not. And there's something powerful in homemade medicine. I mean, that's why... When you make your own food or grow your own food and make a meal out of it, it's super powerful because, you know, from soil, what's so big now is the farm-to-table movement, right? For sure. Because people want to be connected to where it came from. Yeah, I think that's... Same thing with the herbs. That's increasingly important in our world today as we disconnect, disconnect. I think that there's definitely a reconnection movement, which I, I love personally. And on that note... Um, in the realm of DIY botanical medicine, do you think that it's safe for people to experiment with plants? And how should they do that? And are there some some great resources that might help them? You know, I would say, is there any other way? I mean, you know, you have to have some good rules about going out and wild harvesting and, you know, make sure you have a good knowledgeable teacher or reasonably understanding book. But I think start with the weeds that are growing in your yard and just work with those, you know, ones that are attractive. I take students on an herb walk and show them 10 different plants. They're all going to get, Oh, I like this one or this one. And so you get attracted. So pay, pay attention to what, you get really attracted to it's kind of like life you know how do people meet their partners it's like there's something that attracts you to that person they attract and so that's something to be pay attention to i think as practitioner of herbal medicine what i oftentimes feel like is uh i'm kind of like a an herbal um dater you know i'm setting people up on herb dates i'm like here's that person that's sick and here's echinacea Ooh, they're gonna have a nice relationship it's gonna be helpful Mm -hmm. Not everything sticks, but the ones that you do get excited about are the ones that you really want to take notice. And so, um, you know, there's all kinds of caveats about what not to take and what not to do. But if you start with things you can buy, dried herbs, or things you can grow in your garden, you start with the spices like basil and garlic and things like that. Um, Can you eat too much garlic? Yes, I've done it. (laughs) You have a dry mouth for three days because it's irritating and drying, but you're going to get through it. Yeah. No, I think and Portland is a great resource. I mean, the internet's loaded with do-it-yourself kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, find somebody that you think is a good model and follow some recipes and then go off on your own. How about any books or Materia Medicas that you love or something along those lines? Well, you know, I've been trying to work on some recipes to create a book, but there is... Um, one I just reviewed for the Herbalgram called the, I think it's called the Herbal Brewer by a guy named um, Pascal. Is that his first name or last name? Okay. And, and it's a great, he's a Southern California food and writer and picture, but it's got beautiful experimentations with natural fermentations using herbs. And there's some great recipes in there. I mean, there's so many of these books coming out with people just experimenting and 
you know, fermentation is, is pretty big. Um, the James Green book, the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, which is maybe 15, 20 years old, that's a great how to make herbal tinctures, extracts, you know, like a recipe book, Rosemary Gladstar's books on um, herbal healing. It's a great introduction to food and then salves and creams and topical uses. So topical is a great way to get in, introduced because it's easy. Uh, people need to have need for things to put on the skin. Yeah. Cool. Man, I feel like we flew over so many Yeah, no, topics. we had some great topics. Yeah, and part of me kind of wants to skim back over cannabis because I said I would. All but, right. But um, so maybe we can kind of end in that direction. Being as hot of a topic as it is today. Um, so when it comes to using cannabis, you know, just because it is widely available and becoming right. more so in our world today, what does the consumer need to know to make a, yeah. you know, because it is con direct to consumer kind of stuff we're talking about. I think the, the education and there's so many, you know, people doing the education on the different components of cannabis and what you're looking for. But I think the best model is to just really go slow. And I think the movement in cannabis therapeutically is really going to move to oral or to um, topical and oral not so much the smoking. And I would say the smoking is the old end, like smoking cannabis or vaping cannabis. And typically that will release so many cannabinoids that it will overload your system and, and quickly get you too much. And so the model I've often recommended is starting with, you know, depending on what you're looking with, three to five milligrams of THC and maybe three to five milligrams of CBD, like a one-to-one -one blend, and then just seeing if the conditions you're working with, you know, most people are doing it for stress and relaxation. I like the one-to-one -one strains because I think um, the concept is THC is a double edge. I mean, you can get too much, and there's that model that smoking and vaping and the genetics of cannabis have gone so crazy that the breeders have made it so it, there's strains that are 30% THC. Now, there's no plant of any kind that you can, without manipulating, get more than 3 to 5% because plants need all these compounds for a different reason. So to make 30% of something, that's like manipulating and stressing, you know. And so uh, if you think of blueberries, they're like 3% antioxidants. So, like, it's hard to get much higher than that. And so when you manipulate them that way, you can just, you know, that 30% would be like one puff on a vape could be more than you need. And so I think we're thinking, I'm really a fan now of experimenting with low-dose therapeutics long-term, you know, and the thing that I'm personally working on um, in the company and the project that I'm working with is I'm looking at using uh, cannabis products mixed with herbal products and so that we can mix things together that get a synergy from both the botanical end and the herbal end, meaning mm -hmm. the cannabis and the herbs. And so like, uh, adaptogens with uh, relaxing CBD, you know, stress herbs with CBD, um, pain herbs with uh, CBD and THC products. And so mm -hmm. we're looking to come out with a line of products that puts um, the therapeutics also with the flavor and taste in mind. So mm -hmm. something that has a, a good flavor and taste. Mm -hmm. And so that's where putting more of the herbal and the botanical together because mm -hmm. they are one spectrum. Yeah. We're just we're separating them because mm -hmm. of the legalities. For sure. 
very interesting. I've always assumed that the whole plant, the whole cannabis plant, you know, in whole plant form, whether it's smoked or, you know, isolated or like compounded and isolate mm-hmm. or making a tincture or something like that. I've always assumed that that's the most effective way to, to treat anything. But, you know, our world has reduced cannabis into the separate components and two of which are, you know, the CBD and the THC, but there's hundreds, maybe thousands more. What are your thoughts on the isolated compounds and fractions of the cannabis plants as opposed to sticking with a whole plant extra? Yeah, no, I think the rules are all, like I said earlier, like the whole plant may give us things that we need to support ourselves and then the isolates may be something you need for specific conditions and so you can go from the isolated mechanics to the native extracts and all those have value just depends on what you need at the time and that's the beauty of cannabis it can be reduced to pieces and those pieces can be valuable Mm -hmm. or it can be kept as whole but i'm not going to be because things evolve i'm not going to say like oh it has to be one way or the other way Mm -hmm. you know i think um there's a movement in the cannabis industry to isolate and concentrate. And so now we have shatters that are like 90% THC. Well, not great. Now we can do that. But like, let's also look at the terpenes. And there's a lot of research uh, on the terpenes being really effective in small doses. So the smell of cannabis and the effects of the terpenes on how it affects the high. Because CBD and THC have effects, but I think the terpenes kind of modulate it. And when you read of different strains and they're like this kind of high, it's kind of like reading them a wine bottle. A lot of it is just unemployed English majors trying to make a living. because. But you're also setting people up for an expectation. And so the good thing about it is people can look at a strain and what it might do and they can say, oh, that's what I want. And then they give themselves permission to have that journey. Mm-hmm. And so some of it is a little fanciful, fanciful, but some of it is actually helpful. Mm-hmm. But it's the terpenes that are going to help us get those effects, the mm-hmm. limeline and linalool and other components. And so I think those are the three things we're looking at. But now there's components in the roots. I think we'll continue to mine the cannabis plants for other research. And once we can get into the place where we can do research without being illegal in this country, we're going to find a lot of things coming out about different components of the plant. So right now... We can't do it. We have to import the research, really. Yeah, very fascinating. I think we're just uncovering the sheet that's hiding maybe a whole lot that we, you know, that we have yet to discover. Um, yeah, and that's what I think cannabis is so exciting. Is it's kind of breaking the mold. It's saying, you know, it has this historical whole plant model, but we can also break it down into pieces. We can also find the benefits of the parts so we can break it apart and we can put it back together in different ways and address... Uh, many of the health concerns, you know, the whole opioid epidemic, uh, there's a lot of research about cannabis being really helpful for that. I mean, there's really, you can debate how addictive cannabis is, and, and I wouldn't be naive to say that it can't be for some people. But again, in low dose, it's it's probably not going to get there mm-hmm. to people. And so starting people out slow, go slow, go low, and just see how it interfaces with their body. Mm-hmm. Because again, not everybody's going to like the fact if you get too much THC and you get high, people can get uh, paranoid. They can get uh, very anxious, and that experience can be like, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. 
just like some people don't like hot food, you know, it's not for everybody. But what I think we'll see is that there's solutions for people that we haven't thought of with the other herbs. And don't just throw all the other herbs out just because cannabis is the latest, greatest, you know. Mm -hmm. The amount of uh, resources going into it, it's like, you know, if you sell nails, then everything's going to look like a hammer, right? And, mm -hmm. and so the model we have now is that cannabis is a solution for everything. And I would just say pull back and let's look traditionally of how it can be integrated. And a fun thing to do is look up in the old Materia Medicas, like the Felter Materia Medica from 1922, and look up cannabis, because they used it as a, a fluid extract, and look at its indications. And they just had it listed with all the other herbs, and they weren't saying this is the greatest, latest thing. They were just saying this is how it's used. Of course, they were probably dealing with strains that we don't have today, mm -hmm. but it's also a historical medicine. And so, you know, you can research it. Sure. Yeah, like we were saying, it, it could be kind of the, the platform t on, from which, you know, botanical medicine can really kind of take off in a new way. Um, and if it were up to you, if you kind of had the power or control to dictate the destiny of how it looked going forward in terms of how cannabis was unfolding to, into the world, into our world, mm -hmm. what would that look like? Well, I thought of that a lot, having involved myself in this. And I think when I talked earlier about all the herb shops, the few herb shops and all the cannabis shops, I would like to see cannabis move into the herb shops and the solo cannabis shops lessen. Because, again, I think the path I talked about earlier was like the alcohol path. Is cannabis going to become like in the liquor stores, like, here you go, so much potentized or is it going to go in the healing model? And see, when you look at the herb botanical shops with echinacea, burdock, and dandelion, you know, you're looking at a, a rich historical tradition of herbal healing, and cannabis is added to that. Right. And I would love to see herb shops add cannabis, but not devote the whole story to cannabis. And I think we're moving in that direction because ultimately we don't need 150 strains of cannabis, we probably need about six. And as we know more about the genetics and more about the plants, how they apply to conditions. And so could you see an herb shop with six to ten strains of cannabis products and the rest of the herbs and practitioners, as in naturopathic practitioners, that can help guide people into which tools to use when and the appropriateness of this. So just because it's a big hammer, sometimes you just need a little tap. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah. Uh, I would love to see cannabis move into an industry where it's still embraced in healing, it's still embraced into a uh, rich herbal tradition, and not move into the isolated pharmaceutical model like drugs. So that's the path. Does it stay with herbs or does it go to drugs? Yeah. And we'll see. We'll see. It looks like it's going to drugs, but well, um, maybe maybe it can do <laughs> like both. I mean, I don't know. maybe it can be both. And yeah. that's the beauty, I think, of the industry is that um, you know, Oregon yeah. has a, a recreational law. People can grow their own plant, so they still can have a plant in their yard and have a relationship with the plant. And there can be a drug that can help some child who has seizure disorder that's a concentrate of the CBD from the plant. I think the latest trend really is the CBD products. That's kind of breaking the mold with because CBD by itself is not illegal. And so almost all the states have a CBD law where they can sell CBD but it has to come from industrial hemp. So it leads to another whole issue. 
but it's breaking the mold on CBD getting out there and being sold in convenience stores. And mm -hmm. All right. We hammered that nail All right. home. Hammered that nail home. So I want to end with if if there's one thing that you feel like the general population, the masses should know about botanical medicine and herbs or kind of just a message to hammer home, what do you feel like that um, could be? You know, one of my messages is, um, you know, have that relation, have a fun relationship with the plants, you know, like, so if you're drawn to it, find something that you can just ex experiment with and, and don't think of it as the realm of experts. Like I'm not a physician. I can't mess with those. If you fall into the model of spices, make it fun and make it something that you can do with every day. Every day I have some process that I'm thinking about, like, oh, I should pick this. or I'm making a tea of this. I just made some, I was just on a class and we harvested seaweed and we made seaweed slime. And, mm -hmm. and part of that is in the foam that we had on our drink. You know, it's like, oh, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Play with it. So do something every day and it will expand your horizons. Keep it playful. I Keep think it that's playful. A, that, I, that's I think the model. That's it's good. like, you know, if you want to make it um, serious and drug oriented, that doesn't sound like something I want to be involved <laughs> with right now. <laughs> yeah, very, very good point. I, I, I'd love to end on that. And how about, um, are you in the world where people can find you, website or social media? You know, uh, I'm working on that, but I, uh, I'm out there. Uh, I have uh, uh, my email is herbalwiseguy at outlook.com. Herbal wise guy. And that's because there's so many wise women, but we need a few wise guys to keep the stirring the pot. <laughs> well, I think you're that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, All right. Dr. Nagel. It's been a pleasure. And um, peace and love. Thanks for All joining. Right, thanks for having me.